0: The following message is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. You can visit us online at orchardbible.org. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this passage that we have this morning to consider. May we each be enlightened in our life on how we should live and think about our life during these troublesome days based on your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, if you've been with us in recent months, you know we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians. We're now in chapter 7, verse 17. You might remember in the first six chapters, there Paul had dealt with a number of issues that the Corinthian church had. He answered some questions and dealt with them specifically on troublesome difficulties they had. When you come to chapter 7 now, Paul is turning a little bit, answering their specific questions. And the first verses of chapter 7 He answers questions concerning marriage and divorce and should a believer divorce an unbeliever when they become a believer. These sort of questions are being raised. And of course, Paul's message through all of that, as we've seen, is stay where you are. Stay in your marriage. Stay even with an unbeliever. If you're single, you can stay single. If you're married, you can stay married. That's what Paul's message has been. He comes now to verse 17, and he's going to now explain this in greater detail. So we see again in verse 17, as Paul read, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. That's our message this morning. It's simply wherever possible, remain as you are. In whatever circumstance God has put you in, remain in that circumstance because God's put you there for a purpose, for a reason. And so he's explaining to us now why that's the case. And to do this and understand what Paul is saying, we have to understand the context into which Paul is writing. Now, I know, of course, that Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. He's writing to the church in Corinth, explaining to them these uh, issues. But the city of Corinth itself is a very difficult town. It's a cross between the, the seedy side of Las Vegas, perhaps, in many ways, or the, uh, the side of uh, New Orleans, uh, the French Quarter. It's got its difficulties. And so pastoring a church in that town is particularly difficult. And when you do, you're going to have in your church a lot of people that come with a lot of baggage and a lot of background that needs to be dealt with. And so in large measure, Paul is now dealing with people that have a lot of baggage in life. To do that, he's going to explain where possible, stay in the situation in which you're found. However, if necessary, you may have to remove yourself from certain occupations. And that's what we're going to see again this morning. So in this context, there's a couple things to think about to to understand in greater detail what Paul is talking about here. First of all, we have to remember that the Corinthian world is is a very uh, pagan place, pagan religions, a polytheistic world. The Christian message is now coming into that pagan polytheistic world with a very different message. And so Paul is explaining to his believers, his church there in Corinth, that we don't want to disrupt and try and overthrow the society from the outside. Instead, what the Christian life is about is an internal change. And so you can think about the, uh, the effect that the gospel would have in this world if believers thought they could now overthrow their local government, their local customs and habits. And so we see this uh, problem kind of played out in great detail. Charles Hodge is a great theologian of the 1900s, and he wrote about this very point in a commentary he wrote. And let me just read that. Hodge says, Christianity offered a radically different view of the world and one in which many people, as we've already seen in this letter, responded by looking for change in lots of different ways. For example, some Christians thought their new spirituality meant that they could break loose. From their marital ties. Some felt that their new life in Christ required them to abandon their marriages to unbelievers. Some who were slaves were questioning the authority of their masters. And still others believed uh, believers were wondering whether recognizing the lordship of Christ meant that they were free to ignore all other authority, including civil authority. And so Paul's message to this church is we're not about. Social upheaval. Instead, as believers in Corinth, we want to do things from the inside, grow our spiritual lives internally, but it's not about trying to overturn society immediately. And so, what Paul is advocating is basically stability, continuity, and peace in our families, in the church, and even in the society in which we're at. It's not about being a social disruptor. And of course, there's a reason for that. As we'll see, Paul is going to deal with two broad issues, one of circumcision and uncircumcision, which is really the question of the Jewishness of the believers, and the second is of slavery. We're going to talk more about that. But in each of these ways that he illustrates this point, he's going to explain that there's a way to be a true believer even within those circumstances. So there's a first thing we have to consider in the context, and that's that Paul was not trying to overturn the Corinthian society from the outside. Secondly, the context of this letter also shows us that the Corinthian church was confused in many ways about the time in which they lived. In other words, their clocks were wrong. So, for example, they thought that they were living in the last days. And if that's the case, then they thought that if this is the kingdom, we should follow Jesus' teachings and have no marriage. And Paul said, no, we're not there. That's not what time it is. That's not where we're at in God's calendar. Others thought that perhaps the world may be coming to an end soon. Therefore, we can think about things in the short term. We don't have to see the long view of it. And Paul said, we're not there either. Now, you can see why the Corinthian church may have thought so. Uh, You might remember from Mark chapter 13, there where Jesus and his disciples have now left uh, Jerusalem during those last days, went to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus gives his Olivet Discourse. And there explains that there's a coming Uh, A terrible time in the land of Israel, in Jerusalem, where the Jerusalem temple itself will be destroyed and not one stone left upon another. So that's Jesus' message to his disciples. And he explains to them in Mark chapter 13, don't think, though, that that means that this is the end of all days. There's still a lot more to happen before the Son of Man comes, before Jesus then returns. But many in Corinth perhaps thought that this was the end of days. And if that's the case, then we don't have to take a long-term view of things. We can just do everything for the present. And Paul said that's not the case either, that in fact, one day this will all be true, but it's not in fact true now. So Paul's message to this church is very simple. Don't be misunderstood by these things. Don't be misled by them. Uh, Instead, calm down. Stay where you're at in the circumstances in which God has planted you and bloom and blossom there. That's what Paul's message is. And so this morning we're talking on this subject of blooming where you're planted. God has put all of us in a place, in life, in occupations, in societies, in cultures. And God's message to us through Paul is find a way to blossom where you're at. It's not about trying to become something different. And so he states this principle in verse 17, verse 20, and verse 24. So real quickly, we're going to kind of break this passage apart in a few ways and see that. Notice first in verse 17, he says, again, the principle, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. That's it. Go to verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Same point. And then he says it again in verse 24. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. And so Paul three times uses essentially the same message to stay where we're at in life, that that's where we're at. But he does so by saying that we are in a place where we're called. Now, to understand this passage, it helps to kind of follow this word for a little bit because we see him use it in here a number of times. But he uses it in two different ways. First, we know that there's a calling, which is a calling to our salvation that we are called to be believers. And that's used as a primary way throughout all of the New Testament. Paul talks about it in nearly every book he writes, that we are called to be believers. There's a call that goes out to the world, a general call to all to come to Christ. But to those who believe, they are the called, the ones who have now believed in Christ. And so his primary focus here is always going to be that we are called As believers, we're called to be Christians and we're called to live that way. So that's the first way in which it's used in this passage. And that's a primary way in which it's used throughout all of the New Testament. But there's a second way in which Paul also now talks about, and that's a calling of our vocation. Now, the Latin word vocation, we know we hear the word vocal in it, the calling in it. It's something vocalized. It's a call that goes out. We're called to be something. Now, the fancy way to say it is the Latin word vocation. Perhaps the German word job is uh, more uh, what we are accustomed to. But we each have occupations in life. And that, too, we see as our calling. And Paul says that again in verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. The word translated assigned is the exact same Greek word that's used as translated call throughout the rest of this passage. It's the same word to call. In fact, the Greek word is kaleo, from which we get the word call. And so we're called to be something in our life. And it's this calling also that Paul says, that's where you're at. So stay there. You don't have to move away from that. You can serve God and be everything you need to be as a believer right there in that circumstance. And so it's our particular place in life, our station in life, our position in life, or our vocation. Wherever we're at, that's our assignment. It's not an accident. Now, in Paul's world, of course, society was very static. There wasn't a lot of upward mobility for many people. There were small incremental places a person could improve their lot in life. But for many centuries, even after the first century, people found themselves doing what their father did what their mother did. You're either, if your father's a baker, then you're a baker. So there wasn't a lot of this transition. And so in terms of context, we have to think about how this might mean to us in this modern world in the 21st century, where there is a lot of flexibility and upward mobility. And in fact, often downward mobility as well. All of us have to think hard about what Paul is trying to say here. So he's going to now apply this principle for us in a couple of different ways. And the first way we see in verses 18 and 19, he applies his principle in first the social and religious world, in that sphere of our life, and he talks about circumcision and uncircumcision. So again, let's read verse 18 and 19. "'Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision.' For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Now, as we see this passage develop and unfold, uh, we're going to see something of a club sandwich format to it. And again, we've talked about the three commands that he gives in verse 17, 20, and 24. Between those three sets of verses, there's two illustrations going to use. The first is, of circumcision and uncircumcision. The second is the slavery. So again, this is something of a literary club sandwich where you have three pieces of bread and meat between both. Paul's going to make a point and then fill it for us. Make another point and fill it for us, then make the point at the end. And so you see the passage structured quite simply. So he talks now about this question of circumcision and uncircumcision. Now, this, we know, is not a new problem. We've heard about this from much of what Paul wrote. It's a problem that was uh, prevalent in the first century. Uh, The book of Galatians deals to great extent with this problem in many ways. There were those who thought that to become a Christian, you had to first become a Jew. Now, Jews could believe in Christ and move right that direction. But if you're a Gentile, you had to first become a Jew before you could become a Christian. And of course, this might make sense to some in a world in which Christianity was really seen as a further development of Judaism. It was seen as the fulfillment of Judaism. So you can't get to the fulfillment unless you go through the route first. And so that was the argument that uh, Paul was confronted with. Now, of course, in those books, Galatians and other places, he goes to great lengths to explain that, in fact, we don't have to first become a Jew. There's nothing about becoming a Jew first that's necessary in order to become a Christian. And there's a reason for that, uh, as, as we'll see. Now, Paul deals with two questions here, as we see. The question first is whether or not an uncircumcised um, individual has to be circumcised first in order to become a Christian. And in this passage, he says, no, you don't. You can stay in the position in which you're at. And so, of course, uh, there's this this problem with the the formerly uh, Jewish believers uh, who are now wanting Gentiles to become circumcised. Think about theologically why that's not the case. We know from the life of Christ, and in particular his last week, uh, the Passion Week, in which he really explained to us the true message of his life. And and it's like this, quite simply. One, under the Old Covenant, there was a temple, and in the temple there were sacrifices, and under the Old Covenant there was a sign of the Old Covenant, which was circumcision. And so a good Jew would support the temple, go to the temple, The sacrifices would be offered at the temple, and they would be circumcised. Now, in Christ, we see that he, in fact, supplants the temple. He is the new temple. And so we as believers are part of that temple. Now, the time of Paul's writing is in the early 60s of the book of Corinthians. Within 10 years of Paul writing this, the Jerusalem temple itself would be destroyed in the year 8070. It would be destroyed because many Jews were revolting against the oppression by the Romans. And so they thought that the kingdom had to come by their own political and military force. And so they revolted against the Romans when Simon Ben-Giora led the revolt. And in fact, because of that, the Romans came into Jerusalem, destroyed the city, destroyed the temple. Not one stone was left on on another, and many, many Jews were killed. That is what Jesus is warning his disciples about in the uh, Matt of Olive Discourse to don't be around when that's going on. Having said that now, there is no temple. So Judaism had to find a new way for Jews to be Jews. And that's why what we now know as rabbinic Judaism began to blossom, which is basically they became a people of the Torah, of the book. No longer temple sacrifices. But for Christians, we see something slightly different than that. There's no need for a temple. In fact, the temple's destruction was God's judgment on its evil and its successes. Though he was abused by the Sadducees that ran the temple, the high priests that ran it. They were really running it on behalf of the Romans, persecuting those Jews who were less than them. And so the destruction of the temple was necessary because God was building a new temple in Christ. So the temple's gone. And the temple's gone. There's no sacrifices in the temple either. And so those are gone. And, but we know as Christians that Christ was that great sacrifice. Now, the sign of circumcision also was a sign of the Old Covenant, but Christ is the New Covenant, so we no longer need this sign of circumcision. So in all of this, we see theologically speaking, there's no longer a need for a temple, for the sacrifices, or for circumcision. And that's why Paul can say to Jewish Christians, you can't make Gentile Christians become Jewish first by being circumcised. That's his first point there. You don't have to become circumcised. Then he offers, which is a little bit more confounding, the the converse of that, which is one does not have to become uncircumcised. Well, there's a reason for that as well. The uh, ancient world in which this church exists, Corinth, was in Greece. And it's primarily Gentile. And the Gentiles in Corinth throughout Greece in the Roman Empire looked down upon Jews because of who they were. And circumcision as a sign of being Jewishness was a reason to look down on you. It was a mark against you. And there were many in Corinth, perhaps, who thought that we could now undo circumcision. And in fact, there were surgeons who had some means of undoing that. Uh, They would uh, submit to that. And Paul says, you don't have to do that either. Everybody stay in the situation in which you're found. You don't have to lift this uh, mask off. You don't have to undo that. So Paul's instructions are, again, quite simple. Stay where you're at. And again, he makes a point, what really matters is keeping God's commands. What really matters is obeying what is the spiritual side of being a believer. Now, Paul goes to uh, great lengths to explain this to us in many ways. Um, the uh, circumcision doesn't matter. But in Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 8, and again in Romans chapter 10 in different places, Paul goes to great lengths to explain that as believers... Circumcision isn't what's important, outward circumcision, because that's simply an external outward sign. What matters instead is what's in the heart, what Jeremiah 31, 31 calls a circumcision of the heart, what Paul in Romans calls a circumcision of the heart. So again, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1 to 4, Paul writes there, "...there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus." And so there is this point that Paul makes repeatedly that there is a righteous requirement of the law that is fulfilled in us as we're enabled to by the Spirit. So we no longer see the outward works we do as a means of gaining God's favor by doing external works. We see it instead as an internal response to the great thing that God has done within us. And so these keeping commandments aren't to gain our salvation, They're instead as a result of being born again and given new life and living in a new way. Again, in Romans chapter 2, verse 28, Paul says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. So the point is quite simple and plainly made. That circumcision doesn't matter because being a Jew doesn't matter now. Instead, what matters most and only is that we're a believer in Christ. And so Paul makes a point. Stay in the position which you're at in life. If you're circumcised, if you're not, stay in that way. Doesn't matter if you're Jewish or not. You're a believer and that's all that matters. Having said that, he then goes again in verse 20 to make this point again. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. However you were when you became a believer is a fine condition to be a believer. You don't have to adjust your status in this world, your religious status, your social status, or any other way of living uh, in order to be a good believer. Now, he moves on to make his second point beginning in verse 21 to 23. And he does so by raising this question of being a slave. So let's talk about that for just a moment. In verse 21, he writes, Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of that opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called as a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become a bondservant of men. So in this passage now, he raises this question of what it's like to be a slave. To begin with, We may clearly misunderstand this passage if we think of slavery in uh, 19th century America. Slavery in the South that we remember from the Civil War and all that went before that. That was a racially based slavery uh, and had the great cruelty attached to it. Let me explain what slavery was like in the first century. It's a little bit more complicated and a little different. To begin with, slavery had a long history in the first century. In fact, it had a, a long history in the first millennia before Christ. Nearly every major empire, every major culture, every major kingdom employed some form of slavery if they could. And so, when you conquered a foreign people, you might bring many of their best people into your world to be slaves. And so, when we come down through the centuries, we remember the Jews being captive to the Assyrians when the northern tribe is carried off in 20, 722 B.C. We know the Babylonians came for the Judeans in 605 B.C. and carried many away. And again in 587 B.C. carried the rest of them away. So many other Jews uh, lived in Babylon essentially as slaves. The Persians came and freed them, but the Persians kept them under control as well. And then there was a short time uh, when the Greeks came in under Alexander the Great in 323 B.C. and enslaved them now to the Greeks both to the Ptolemies from Egypt and the Seleucids from the north in Syria. And so the Jewish people had been essentially enslaved for 600 years or more by the time Christ comes on the scene. The Romans began their empire, of course, in about the 500 BC. As time passes, the city of Rome began to grow and expand. And it wasn't long before Rome was now controlling not only much of the Italian peninsula, but much of the known world entirely itself. And so as Rome did this, they had a problem. As you extended your empire, you needed more military. You needed more soldiers. And the only soldiers you had were those who were working farms. This is a world in which 95% of all labor was on the farms growing food. When you took your farmers away to become soldiers, you had nobody to tend to the crops. And that gave rise to Roman slavery. And so the Romans began to enslave, and they found a great store of slaves in the peoples they conquered. And so in the year 163 BC, when Rome conquered uh, Carthage in North Africa, they brought back to Rome about 50,000 Carthaginians to be slaves throughout the Roman Empire. Now, slavery was well established. And when we come to the first century with Jesus, the Romans controlled the, the known world at the time, and slavery was everywhere, an institution that was widely accepted and was not going to be overthrown or challenged. And so that's how important it was. On the Italian peninsula that at that time had 7.5 million inhabitants, they estimate that 2.5 million of them were slaves. So one out of three that lived on that Italian peninsula lived as a slave. But it wasn't the slave we're thinking of. Instead, slaves were a little bit different. Remember, they come from conquered peoples, the Greeks, the Carthaginians, who themselves had great skill, great knowledge. And so to become a slave might mean uh, that uh, you, you had a great skill that came with you. And so to the Romans, they would take advantage of that skill. And so many slaves, although they were slaves and truly owned by their master, they themselves were employed with great liberty, with great freedom, and able to use their great skills. Many slaves we've seen uh, operated uh, companies for their masters, had freedom to travel doing their masters' businesses, That's where we see parables that Jesus gives about uh, these wicked uh, uh, owners. Uh, All of this is the nature of the slavery that we see in the first century. And so through all of this, there was great freedom. Many times a slave had a better life as a slave with a wealthy owner than they did as a freed poor person with no land, with no ability to care for themselves. And so many chose to be in slavery because it was a safer way to live your life. There's a protection to it. And so slavery, again, in the first century was a lot more complicated than we normally think. So when Paul says to this church, to those who are slaves there, be content where you're at, he is, in a sense, saying that if you can stay in that uh, situation, you should. You don't need to free yourself in order to be a good Christian. You can be a good Christian where you're at. Now, we know also, he said in uh, this passage, that if you can and the opportunity arises to free yourself, you should take that opportunity. In fact, in this uh, time, in the first century, freedom from slavery was common. In fact, it became so common for Romans to free their slaves, and when they did, those slaves received Roman citizenship. They could then become full Romans as freedmen. Uh, When they received their citizenship, they could go and live their lives that way. But it became so common For Romans to free their slaves, that Caesar Augustus said, you have to slow it down, you can no longer free a slave before that slave turns age 30. So Augustus said you have to keep them until age 30, kind of slow down the rate of these slaves being freed. And so this is the world in which this is happening. Now, Paul comes along and apparently is dealing with a few people who thought that they should be free from their master. And perhaps they thought the reason they should be, of course, is because they understood Theologically and spiritually, that they are now a slave of Christ. And so, if they're a slave of Christ, they should not also be a slave of a master. Now, the book of Philemon, we can't digress onto this, is a story much like that. And we know of the slave there, Onesimus, who meets Paul. Paul leads him to the Lord and then sends Onesimus back to Philemon. Now, there must have been some point in their conversation where Paul and Onesimus realize, Paul comes to understand that Onesimus is a slave. You see, that it wasn't racial. There was no way to identify a slave because he was black, as you would have known in the 19th century America. Instead, uh, every slave looked like everybody else and could mix freely in the world. Paul sent Onesimus back to Philemon with a letter that said to Philemon, please treat him rightly because he's a believer with us. And so that's the message Paul is making here. If you're a believer, then be the right kind of servant or slave. If you're an owner, then be the right kind of owner. Treat those who you, who you have uh, with great liberty and freedom. And that's a, this, the world in which we're talking about here. So socially speaking, they may have belonged to another, but in Christ, Paul says, you are free. In Christ, you were always free. And that's the point he's making. Your personal circumstances don't in any way prevent you from living the life that God has called us to. So you think about what Paul says here to the slave. To the slave, he looks at him and says, you can live free in Christ. You may belong to another externally, but in Christ, you're free. You're free from your sin. You're free from your bondage. Spiritually, you're free to become all that you can be and should be in Christ. But what does Paul say now to the person who is free? He has another thing to say to them. He reminds them in many places that you too are a slave. When you become a believer, you are a slave to Christ. The point being that all of us are slaves and freemen. We're all slaves to Christ and we're all free in Christ at the same time. And so what Paul is doing is sort of flattening out this whole world and saying in Christ spiritually, uh, there's, we're, we're one and the same. We live the same way. We have the same thing. Now the person who is enslaved might be in danger of forgetting that he's free. And so Paul reminds them, reminds him or her that you are free in Christ. To the person who's free, however, they're in danger of forgetting that they are a slave to Christ. And so Paul advises and reminds them that you too are a slave in Christ. And so when you put these two things together, we see in great measure how this plays out. In Christ we are free, but we're enslaved to him as his servant. And so our external circumstances don't control us. They don't determine how we live and who we are in Christ. And all of this is important to what it means to be a believer. Now as we make application of these things, we can think first of all about the fact that Christianity does make a radical change in a person's moral and spiritual life, but it doesn't normally require a person to radically change their external social circumstances. No matter what world we're born into, whether it's As an American with a lot of money, whether it's as an African with no water, whether it's a Guatemalan, an Asian, all around the world, you can still be a good believer in whatever circumstances you're placed. Whatever a lot you have in life, whatever your position in this world is, there's nothing that prevents any of us from becoming a full person in Christ. You can live with your circumstances, whatever they are in our world in America today, we are upwardly mobile. We do have greater freedoms to do things. That should give us the ability to still expand in this world ourselves, but at the same time be true to what we are in Christ. Secondly, when he talks about circumcision and uncircumcision, he's, he's showing that that has great uh, cultural implications. And it can be summarized quite simply. If you're a Gentile, stay a Gentile. If you're a Jew, stay a Jew that none of that matters. Now, in our world, going back in time, perhaps because of racism, there was a thought that white is beautiful. Well, and then the uh, African-Americans came along and said, no, black is beautiful. And then others say, no, we're brown, we're beautiful. And we're American, we're proud of that. And then it became to sort of isolate ourselves in that way. And what Paul says here is revolutionary. He doesn't say everything is beautiful. In fact, he says, and makes his point here, that none of that matters. It doesn't matter if you're white. It doesn't matter if you're black. It doesn't matter if you're American or Mexican or poor or whatever you are. None of that matters. All that matters is who we are in Christ. And as a believer in Christ, me in my world, you in your world, others in their worlds, it doesn't matter because all of us share that common bond and unity in Christ. If you've ever been on the mission field, you've experienced an occasion where you met a believer, from a culture, from a world, from a socioeconomic status, from a language barrier, but still you knew in Christ they were one with you. And you've experienced that moment when you realize that none of those other external circumstances matter. They all pale in comparison to the fact that we are in Christ, one with one another. And that's the point that Paul is making. And so again, he's making the point that it doesn't matter... Uh, what we uh, do in our life, what we have in our life, but instead what we are in Christ. We're called, he says, we're called in God to be who we are and what we are. And as he says in verse 17, that's our assignment. We're called to be this in Christ. And so he makes us a point finally again in verse 24. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, so let him remain with God. In whatever place we are in life, we can remain there in God. Whatever our assignment is in this world, we can be fully Christian, fully satisfied believers in that world. It doesn't matter what our occupations are, where we're at. All of that is true. And it's important for us to think about that. We don't deal with slavery here in 21st century America in the same way. We think about our jobs instead. But that's also true. And who we are in our jobs is also important. So think about it this way. Uh, Historically, in the church, there was a time from the first century coming forward for at least a millennia where the church began to grow. And late in the Roman Empire, in the 400s and after that, the Roman Empire was Christianized in some sense, beginning with Constantine and following. But you move through the Middle Ages and you find out that the church now dominated the world. And so the church was the world. In fact, the Pope in Rome during the Middle Ages made the kings of foreign countries. He appointed them. He confirmed them as their king. And so the church controlled everything. In that world, you might think, the church was triumphant. It was over everything. But then time begins to pass. There was the time of the Renaissance, then the Reformation, and then the eventual enlightenment in which there was a rebellion against the church in Rome controlling everything. In fact, Martin Luther lived during this time. And what Luther taught us was quite simply this, that as believers in whatever job we have in life, we can do that to God's glory. We don't have to be a priest. We don't have to be a nun or a monk. We don't have to be what they called a religious, which is a person fully committed 100% to the church. But Luther said we can be a fully fulfilled believer doing God's will and God's work in any occupation. In fact, he wrote a very famous book about calling, uh, admonition to fathers, and said that you can, as a father, change a diaper to God's glory, doing that. And so Luther made this point in many ways. He spoke of it as a milkmaid. Uh, in the ancient world, you had to have milkmaids who milked the cows. The milkmaid, Luther says, is the mask of God. God is the one who gives us his milk, but he does it. Through the milkmaid. He does it through whatever occupation a person has in life. And all of us have different occupations. As we think about even the people in our own congregation, we know that we have people here who are nurses, who are teachers, who are carpenters, who are artists and secretaries and bookkeepers and lawyers and receptionists and accountants, office managers, waitresses, plumbers and salesmen, security guards, cops, decorators, musicians, architects, painters, house cleaners, school administrators. We have people that do nearly every occupation, even within our own own congregation. Paul's message is, whatever job you have, whatever occupation you're called into, do that to God's glory and know that you can be fully fulfilled in Christ doing that. And so that's why he can say, stay where you are. You don't have to change to full-time Christian ministry in order to serve God. You can serve God in the occupation in which you have. Now of course there's one caveat to that. Uh, There were those certain aspects of the ancient world in our modern world as well, where that occupation is not appropriate for believers such as prostitution and Paul dealt with that. Those people were called to leave those occupations and to do something else. But in the normal occupations of life, there wasn't a call to leave it. In fact, Paul's Paul's message is different. It's to stay where you're at, to not abandon your current world. Stay where you're at as much as possible. Don't abandon your relationships. Don't turn your back on your cultural heritage. You don't need to uh, abandon your vocation, your job, your calling, your career. All of these things you can stay with and do as a believer in God. There's no reason to leave that. So that's Paul's message for us today. For us, we think about that. We need to think harder about what it means for us to be a believer here with our calling, We're all called, and that's the primary calling we have, we're all called as believers. That's what controls everything. That's what controls the way we live and think. We each have a secondary calling in life, a position we fill in this world, a position that's given to us by God to meet the needs of others, including other believers, particularly our family. That's where we're at in this world. And so all we need to do now is think harder about how we can be more faithful in our life, in our world, in this world serving God uh, with what he's given to us. Rather than seeking success outside in the world, financially, socially, politically, instead, seek the success that comes from spiritual effort, reaping spiritual fruit in our spiritual endeavors. Let's pray. Our Father, as we consider your word this morning. We ask that each of us will be enlightened by these words of Paul, understanding that it's not our social circumstances, it's not our economic circumstances, but instead it's our freedom we have in you to be fully free from our sin. It's our bond servant to you as our Lord. May we be faithful servants to you, serving you in whatever capacity we're given. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.